Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today is producer Carmen Baskoff's last day. She's heading to grad school in the fall, and I'm very sad that she's leaving the show. But I am excited to hear from Carmen about her next adventure, getting her master's in Europe. And she may contribute an occasional show in the future, so it's not goodbye. On her last day, Carmen has pitched quite a show for you if you're an NFT and cryptocurrency newbie. Yep, I'm describing myself. Coming up, we explain what an NFT is, and we talk broadly about cryptocurrencies. We can help answer your questions, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment or question on Facebook or on Twitter, at Where We Live. First joining me on Zoom is Kelly Crow, a staff reporter covering the art market for the Wall Street Journal. Kelly, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So I mentioned NFT, which stands for non-fungible token. So talk about this term and what it means exactly. Okay, so we all actually know what fungibility is. If I have five $1 bills and you have a $5 bill and we swap, no one has lost any value, right? Even though the form has changed, the value of the money is the same. That's fungibility. So a non-fungible token is like a digital voucher, a digital certificate of authenticity that can't be traded. So if you have one and I have one, um, they're not the same and therefore, artists who have been posting pictures uh, and digital things online, right, couldn't find a way to um, make them tradable, uh, make them not just, you know, where you can just snap a snap a screenshot and you have the same copy because we all look at things the same on the internet. But if, uh, if one has this token attached to it, then we know which one's the original one, right? The legit one. And that's sort of transformed, um, transformed um, the marketplace for online art. It really has. And we're going to be talking about that more uh, coming up. But I wanted to share an NFT story from the Where We Live team, uh, producer Sujata Sinavasan's experience purchasing digital art. This is what she shared. Uh, she wrote, I was on Clubhouse when Pierce Brosnan was talking about art that he made. His first NFT collection that was selling online at lgnd.art. Now, my home is full of art. I absolutely love work by local artists, art by my friends' kids, and I buy these for pleasure but we also have a kid to put through college and Brazen was selling a quirky limited edition called earplugs for 20 bucks each Sujata says he said he was inspired by the earplugs he wore when filming GoldenEye so I thought four or five of these would make a good investment and they let you buy only one I mean how wrong can you go with a $20 Pierce Brosnan this is embarrassing. I expected it to be arrived by mail, but nothing showed up. It was confusing because it said wax next to the art, so I assumed it was maybe something physical. And then I found out in a smack your forehead moment, the art I bought is in a digital wallet on the website and I have a token, an NFT. And of course, wax, like Bitcoin, is a crypto. 
Duh! So I'll be able to sell it after all when it's time to pay college fees. So Kelly, I wanted you to respond to Sujatha's story. She bought something that she didn't really understand <laughs> what she was buying, but it really fits into how the digital art world has changed and maybe how the traditional art world is being transformed by these NFTs. Uh, talk more about that. No, I think the story is, is completely typical of a lot of collectors, even folks who were, like you say, buying art from galleries or buying them online and having things shipped. This is uh, the digital bonanza is sort of sort of sprouted up really since um, the spring for most traditional collectors. Folks who are really into crypto were paying attention all last year and over the winter, some major um, digital artists were starting to make some money. And um, But really, mom and pop America, right, wasn't really paying attention until about March or April. And so, you know, um, it's a brand new world out there and it's there's kind of a gold rush fever <laughs> to it. Um, so a lot of folks are still just trying to figure out um, what they are and how to collect them wisely and not get suckered or scammed um, in the process. But um, basically, yeah, she's bought a digital asset. So that that image will only be seen and traded online. Um, and it's in a, uh, a place that she can access. And hopefully she bought it from a platform where she can move it off of that platform and onto her computer or onto somewhere sort of safe um, so that if anything happens on that side, it still exists. Um, that's one tip I would have for collectors. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of folks are sort of stumbling into it um, and really trying to figure out what's going on. Now, there's a, a case study of a famous GIF, Nian Cat. You can see this, listeners, if you go to WMPR.org slash where we live, there's an image of Nian Cat. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's an animated cat whose body is made of a pink Pop-Tart. It flies mm -hmm. shooting out a rainbow. This was this GIF was pretty popular, Kelly, on the Internet in the 2010s. Uh, and then uh -huh. people people may have shared it on social media now. Nian Cat sold for nearly $600,000 as an NFT. What's going on? Well, I think what it really is, is we have right a generation of young folks, millennials, right, who grew up with memes, right? And they've lived on social media and the trading and the sharing and the snapping and the TikToking or whatever of memes, right, is pervasive in their culture. It's very normal for them to swap images. It's a huge way in which they communicate. It's punchlines to jokes. It's, 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 it's almost native, right, in how they communicate with each other. And so when this little meme came up, um, the fact that it's so well known, um, it helps the value of it. If you have exactly something that the originator considered to be the, the, the original of it, right? In the same way that like, you know, we go to the Louvre and we see the Mona Lisa, we don't get to walk out with the Mona Lisa. Maybe we buy a poster or, a, a, you know, a, a, whatever we buy something from the souvenir shop right we want to take a little piece of this thing that's so ubiquitous and universally loved um but we want to take a little souvenir but um really only one person can have that original so i think that same kind of supply and demand sort of dynamics come into play as well as just the human desire to collect and to own something that everyone loves but that only you claim ownership to right i mean this this sort of impulse in us is pretty primal and has you know driven picasso prizes into um at, you know way north of uh, way north of a hundred million dollars so there's something really timeless about nfts and then there's something super fresh and new technologically in terms of how these smart contracts are written and the strings that can get attached to them 
you know, for the first time, digital artists can write in code where if you trade that piece um, subsequently, the artist will get a little resell royalty, which has never really been effectively you know, installed in the, uh, certainly in the American art market. So there's just like, there's all these great kind of age-old mechanisms, <laughs> age-old impulses, right, that are taking place as well as all this brand new technology. And it's colliding and creating kind of a stew right now, but I, I don't think the tar pit will last forever. I think, I think things will start mm-hmm. to sift out. So when you hear that this uh, digital art is selling for more than, you know, half a million dollars, this uh, obviously uh, can be received uh, pretty positively by other artists. I mean, what are they saying and how has the traditional art world responded? Oh, gosh. At first, there was a ton of, of, of head scratching. I was also on Clubhouse, um, like your uh, like your listener. And it's all anyone wanted to talk about in March and April and, and certainly in May leading up to the um the $70 million sale of, of Beeple's every day is at Christie's. I mean, everyone just wanted to try to figure out what they are. Now that we know that there's value to them, a lot of artists are beginning to move into the space, major artists with museum followings and auction, you know, track records um, are starting to experiment in the space, like Urs Fisher, John Gerard, um, just a lot of them, uh, Daniel Arsham, uh, major artists who already have a following are beginning to get into them. And I think that's been a little bit of a bridge for um, collectors who know these artists but don't know the technology, right? They'll probably stick with artists that they know. On the other hand, you know, because just about anybody can mention NFT, um, it's sort of been a real playground for a lot of unknown artists to just try to, you know, make it big. Um, I feel like their odds are harder. It's better sort of if you have a already have a reputation online for being kind of an innovator in that space. I'm thinking now uh, along the lines of people or even more like Pac, artists who have sort of inhabited a digital space for a long time and have... Um, you know, built up that following. So you're seeing a real kind of bifurcated artist marketplace within the well-known ones and the brand new ones. And again, that's why I say like the roster of which NFTs to collect is sort of still getting sorted. We'll be digging more into the technology side of this. Uh, but first, you mentioned Beeple. Tell us more about this artist and how your reaction when you watched that auction happening. Oh my gosh, it was mind blowing. I have to say, it was absolutely mind blowing. Um, I didn't know what we were about to get launched into. I'll confess, I was a little bit of a of a neophyte in terms of the technology of it. I didn't realize what a big deal it was going to be. But um, when this artist named Mike Winkleman, um, he's based down in South Carolina, but he posted um, an NFT, uh, basically a collage of his entire life's work. He had, uh, he does a drawing every single day, usually using cinema 4d and kind of these online animator applications. He's a graphic designer and an artist by trade. So, you know, he's familiar with a lot of this technology and, um, he, um, posted basically like a, a pixelated collage of everything he's ever done and uh christie's posted it on their auction and the bidding was i think it started really low and so i was like i'll just keep an eye on this crazy wacky thing christie's is doing but then the bids like went over 10 million over 20 million and i thought oh god that's like some serious painting level prices here um and uh when it finally you know when the hammer finally fell digitally we were at um I think 60 million. And then with, uh, with the fees, it was 69. So it's just, it, I, I just 
was mind boggled. I mean, and, the, and the, he was too. I mean, he was sitting on clubhouse chatting with some friends, watching it happen. And you could just see his whole fortunes and his life changed. And it felt like a real, it felt like a real milestone moment for art history because basically, although digital art has been around forever, the medium, the marketplace and the medium for that was sort of brand new and, and being able to sort of see that birth. It was basically like watching a baby be born. I was <laughs> very humbled in awe, you know, of the wackiness of all that. So who are these investors that are paying this kind of money? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that I had early on too. And I think it's hugely significant to understanding the values that we're seeing. So folks who joined Bitcoin at the very beginning um, and really, I mean, it's been a roller coaster, right? Because it's a volatile, it's decentralized, right? So it's volatile. But there are um, guys who really got in and started playing with these um digital currencies um, over the years. And now Bitcoin's what, like almost a decade old or a decade old. And so um, they have maybe bought very low at the very beginning. And um, now, you know, they have a huge value and they have very little to spend with it, right? Like, it's not like you can go to Aldi and buy a gallon of milk with Bitcoin, right? So they have this huge store of wealth and very little places to sort of store it. And so when art, which has always, you know, perennially been a storage of value and alternative asset when it finally became possible for art to be traded sort of buying this currency i think that's they were like let's go for that so they just kind of went gonzo um collecting and buying nft art but a lot of it's with money that they bought cheaply right um and um so that it, you wonder how sustainable it, it can be this is where we live today. We're diving into the world of NFTs. They're a way to own digital art. And we're also learning more about cryptocurrencies. My guest right now is Kelly Crow, staff reporter covering the art market for the Wall Street Journal. And joining us now is Nikilesh Day. Uh, he is managing editor for global policy and regulation at Coindesk. This is a crypto focused news outlet based in New York. Nick, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we, we've gotten some background on NFTs, but technologically, this information behind them is stored on the blockchain. So for the newbies out there, explain how blockchain works in basic terms and, you know, just some reaction from what you've been hearing so far. Yeah, so a blockchain is basically... Um, the example I like to use is if you've ever had a Google document, you can always check the editing history in it because, you know, it's stored on their servers. A blockchain is like if you applied that, but kept it on, you know, dozens and dozens of computers around the world so that there's no single centralized control. Anyone can contribute to this, but also you need a majority of these computers to agree that, you know, whatever you're looking at is the actual accurate history so basically it's a way of both making sure you don't have a single party controlling you know the network but also keeping a permanent record you know that anyone can look at at any time now we've been talking about nfts i understand they're on another platform known as ethereum tell us about that yeah so when while you have a blockchain uh, underpinning most cryptocurrency networks you also have at this point, thousands of different cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin's the big one that everyone's familiar with. It started in 2008, um, and you know it's been chugging along for quite a while now. Ethereum is the second largest cryptocurrency network at, the time, at this time. 
it uh, started, I think, just over six years ago, and it's been uh, you know growing since. And while Bitcoin was primarily intended as a peer-to-peer payments tool, Ethereum's been kind of described by its creators as an effort to be a world computer. So to do more than just you know transfer money, it's also being intended to help support things like NFTs. Um, basically, you can build NFTs on top of this network. You can create other tokens that you know live on top of Ethereum. So while they're doing their own thing, Ethereum is kind of the network underpinning all of it, making sure all of it can operate and you can transfer value or you know send, in this case, digital art from point A to point B, uh, while still maintaining those same core tenets of decentralization and you know not having a single controlling entity. You mentioned Bitcoin starting uh, around 2008. Uh, back then, not a lot of people understood it or uh, were really investing. Uh, but now it seems to be becoming more mainstream. Why is that? I think there's a couple different reasons. Um, you know, obviously, as Kelly mentioned before, um, right now you have uh, an entire generation of folks who have grown up in the wake of a financial crisis, and you know they're looking at you know, at the centralized banks, at the, you know, the way the financial system operated while they were growing up or while they were first entering the world, uh, you know, the adult world. And they're, you know, maybe losing faith in these banks. They're looking to alternatives to, you know, different ways of storing their value so that they don't have to deal with something like that again. Um, there's also, you know, this is the internet. There's quite a few people who are just in it for the meme potential, um, you know, We've seen that with Wall Street uh, bets earlier this year, but you do have quite a few folks who are investing in Bitcoin for the same reasons. They think, you know, well, these, uh, you know, these stock exchanges are doing their own thing, but we want to have our own place to, you know, try and, uh, you know, put our value in and earn returns. Um, there are also, you know, definitely quite a few who are, all, you know, just they like Bitcoin because of this idea that it's something that is not controlled by the government. It's not controlled by any banks or a central bank. It is controlled purely by everyone who is, uh, you know, participating in a network that, you know, they can be anyone, you know, could be folks, uh, you know, living in their homes and their apartments and just trying to contribute. Could be companies that are setting up mining farms, but you don't have, you know, an easy, uh, target to look at, you know, when it comes to, you know, who's controlling it. So that appeals to some people. When we think about uh, the users at large, you know, are they regular people or are they now the wealthy becoming wealthier, Nick? I think it's a little of A, a little of B. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a lot of folks who got in because they had the the wealth necessary to help them buy in. But you also have quite a few people who are, you know, they call it stacking sats, but basically, you know, the concept is you're buying a tiny fraction of a Bitcoin at a time and you just keep on doing that. You keep on adding to your holdings and, you know, with the hopes that one day you'll have a significant amount that will let you participate in this economy. Or if your goal is to just try and, you know, accumulate as much as possible, the idea is or you hope that at some point you will have done so. You'll have, uh, you know, a significant portion of value in whatever, you know, economic world is coming. 
Uh, Kelly Crow from the Wall Street Journal. I wanted to get your take uh, more about uh, the people that are now um, getting into cryptocurrencies. Uh, do you think that more people are just frustrated by their options for the traditional investments and this is driving some of the demand? I, I mean, I'm sure that there's a portion that's that. I would say among my like museum trustee <laughs> sort of everyday collector crowd, I think it's um, also just a little bit of curiosity, right? They want to get in on what could be something historic, right? So I've got, you know, my ladies on Park Avenue who are telling me, I'm telling my stockbroker to get me some Bitcoins, you know? And then I also have... <laughs> Um, you know, young guys in their 30s and 40s who are very crypto savvy, but are not art savvy, right? And they have always sort of dreamed of being an art patron, don't really know that world very well. Um, maybe they've never been to an art fair, they've certainly never been to Christie's, but they do love art and they do love the things that they're seeing online and they just kind of want to be part of the game. So I, I, I really feel like it's a very broad cross-section of both makers and collectors in this space, which is... Um, you know, just in terms of the DNA of the thing, that's great. It's just going to be just very chaotic right now because we as humans also still want to classify things, right? So mm -hmm. even as even as we're applauding this marketplace for being very decentralized, like there's a cry for curation. So we're already sort of asking the tastemakers who rule um, the traditional art world to sort of weigh in on which NFT artists they like, which is sort of the winnowing of taste, Um around which then everyone wants to step to and follow. Um, so it's, just, it's a very interesting collision of impulses because some people want it to be as wild and crazy and not as attached to the traditional world of banking, but they do kind of want it to adhere to some of the traditional norms of the art world. And so, um, yeah, it just feels very much like a Wild West um, sort of atmosphere right now. And um, frankly, for a collector, if you're conservative, if you're nervous, then I would hold off, right? Because that's very speculative. Um, right. It's very much like the contemporary art world, right? Art history is a brutal mistress and it takes a long time for people to sort of figure out who's the da Vinci of our century, right? We don't know that yet and we probably won't for a long time. So if you're buying NFT artists, you need to buy them because you love them and you're having fun with it. But I wouldn't bet your life savings on an NFT artist right now because we don't know. Will they be the Picasso of the next century? Um, time will tell, but I, I would be conservative rather than giddy if, if, if you're spending real money, if you know what I mean. I like those words of wisdom from you, Kelly. I, I saw in a New York Times piece, uh, they summed up NFTs as the YOLO, FOMO, LOL economy. Translation, you only live once, fear of missing out, laugh out loud economy. Do you think that's a fair description, Kelly? Yeah, I think so. And you know what? We've all been so cooped up over the last year, right? Like we live on our screens. We're very comfortable there. And we've been sort of inhaling everything from TV to you know, reunions with grandma. I mean, everything's been funneled through this little screen in front of us. And so it's, it, it's totally natural that art would be changed by it, right? Because we as a society have been changed by it. And it's a global change all at once, which I feel like rarely happens that we all as an entire globe experience something. I mean, I'm sure people even ignore the Olympics, right? Which is because we're all supposed to be paying attention to that. But, but the pandemic, we couldn't ignore, right? And so we're all coming out of this traumatic moment or still in this traumatic moment. And we're all kind of processing it on our screens. And so in a way, it's totally poetic that this art form would 
proliferate right on a screen um, and that the fortunes that we make are being made digitally in ways that we can't see with our hands um, and we can't even trade with our hands but you know we're not even handshaking yet in real life so I just think it's all makes it's all kind of beautifully poetic for I think the, the time that we live in. And then real quick, uh, Kelly, as, as you, we've been talking about NFT technology, uh, reshaping the art world, what will you be watching in the next few months and the upcoming year? I mean, the, the um, ability to be scammed. Do you think that the scammers mm-hmm. are out there figuring, okay, how are we going to make uh, <laughs> some of this? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. As in the traditional art world, you've got art theft, you've got art impersonation, you've got people making fake paintings and selling them. I remember when Rash became a real market force suddenly the market was filled with all these like russian icon paintings i'm like i haven't seen this many russian icon paintings um and uh in, in museums and suddenly they were everywhere so you know um opportunity will often stoke um interest from criminal elements and obviously the hackers are already um hugely tech savvy and so i would definitely say buyer beware i would definitely if you're interested in buying an nft artist i would reach out to them on social media and make sure that the piece that you're seeing on the website offering it for sale um, is really backed by them it's very easy to try to check with the artists themselves hey are you behind this sale um just to make sure that you're not buying an impersonator right because then there's questionable value if that's a fake then one of these days, you're not going to be able to trade it if that artist disavows it. So um, I would also be aware of phishing schemes, you know, any sort of get rich things that just feels too good to be true, right? Um, be Keep those same instincts in place, even if you're navigating a new marketplace. So if you're getting an email saying, hey, you know, my dad has a billion dollars that he wants to give you. Just give me your <laughs> the password to your digital wallet and we'll transfer it. You need to be skeptical of that, just as you would if someone were calling you, you know, with that same offer in real life. So don't don't lose your don't lose your head and don't lose your savings in in, in just the giddiness of the moment. You know, stay smart. Kelly Crow is staff reporter covering the art market for the Wall Street Journal. Kelly, it's been fun. Thank you for joining us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nick Day will stay with us. He's managing editor for Global Policy and Regulation at Coindesk. It's a crypto-focused news outlet based in New York. Now, most of us have heard of cryptocurrencies, but maybe you think it's not relevant to our lives. But cryptocurrency investment is becoming increasingly mainstream, with one 401k provider even offering users to invest a small portion of their retirement in crypto. We'll talk about that and the implications for all of us after the break. You can join us to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're diving into cryptocurrencies with my guest on Zoom, Nikolesh Day, Managing Editor for Global Policy and Regulation at Coindesk. It's a crypto-focused news outlet based in New York. If you think it's not quite mainstream, think again. Congress included in its infrastructure bill a way to tax cryptocurrencies. There's money being made. Uncle Sam wants his share. Also, as the Washington Post reported, quote, conversations surrounding cryptocurrencies are becoming increasingly common, especially as ransomware attacks, whose perpetrators demand payments in cryptocurrency, heighten awareness among victimized people, companies, and municipalities, even here in our state. Can cryptocurrencies have a positive impact, or is it all about getting richer? Coming up later, we'll learn about the drawbacks to cryptocurrencies, a big environmental impact that's just ahead. But Nick, I wanted to get back to you when we talk about uh, cryptocurrencies and how they have value. Walk us through the system. Yeah, so cryptos, the basic idea behind crypto is you have, you know, uh, the ability to transact on this network without interference, like we said before. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the value does come from, you know, largely this idea. It's not necessarily, you know, there's no government backing this, um, you know, like you have with dollars or other, you know, national currencies. So whatever value goes into the system is really put in by the folks who are interacting on it. And, you know, that started out as uh, just a, you know, you had, I think, multiple Bitcoins to a dollar back in, you know, when it started in 2008, 2009. And now you have, I think, $2 trillion or so in the overall crypto market. Um, some of that is largely, you know, due to retail users. So, you know, everyday folks who are trying to participate. But you also now have, you know, massive institutions that are trying to participate as well. And they're treating this as, you know, some people, uh, some businesses are treating this as an inflation hedge. Some businesses are just treating this as, you know, potential investment. Um, Tesla, I think, is one of, or yeah, Tesla is one of the biggest names, I think, that has Bitcoin on its balance sheet. But you also have companies like, um, you know, MicroStrategy that has a huge amount of Bitcoin just sitting there and, they're just, you know, treating it as something to, uh, you know, as a as a safe place to store their value, you know, in this, uh, especially you know during this time when a lot of you know there's a lot of turmoil in the overall markets. So basically, if more people are investing in crypto because they believe it has value, then the price will rise and vice versa. And so <laughs> yes. recently, you know, with the fluctuations, what's happening there? So crypto has always been a little volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, I started in this industry in 2017, and at the time, Bitcoin went up to nearly twenty thousand dollars, and then shortly thereafter went down to a couple, you know, just I think four or five thousand. So it's always been, 
a somewhat volatile market. And part of that might be because it is also pretty small. Despite the you know $2 trillion figure I just mentioned, relative to other markets, there really isn't you know a huge amount of participants in this market. So any movement is going to, I think, just by extension, be a little bit more dramatic than you might see for, say, Boeing stock. And that is, I think, part of it. Um, there's also, you know, this is a 24-7 market. Traditional stock markets have, you know, they stop after 4 p.m. on weekdays and they don't trade on weekends. You also have, you know, safety mechanisms to prevent, you know, very rapid movements in short periods of time. None of that exists in the crypto market. It's just kind of there. If you want to participate, all you have to do is sign up to an exchange or find another on-ramp and you can do it. You can buy, you can sell. So a lot of times, you know, these movements happen when, you know, one group of traders might be going to bed or another group of traders is waking up. So for example, if, you know, you see Bitcoin's price spiking overnight when you're in the US, it means that you have traders in Asia or Australia who are trying to, you know, buy in and, uh, you know, that's going to be a necessarily a smaller group than uh, what you might see with their stock market counterparts. So when we think about when Bitcoin first started, it was meant to function like a, a currency like dollars. So you could buy and sell goods, maybe even some services. So if you have Bitcoin today, Nick, uh, can you buy certain things? Can you give us examples? Yeah, you actually can. It's... Uh... It might not be the easiest thing in the world, but there are companies out there that are trying to make it easier for you to do so. But you can absolutely go to a coffee shop, uh, you know, use some Bitcoin to buy yourself a, you know, a coffee. Um, there are companies that are piloting with, you know, well-known businesses. So there's a company called Back that's partnered with Quiznos Subs in, uh, I believe, Denver, Colorado. So you can buy a you know, a sub if you want to using Bitcoin in Denver. And you have, you know, different brands that are saying, okay, well, you know, we can let you buy, you know, whatever with Bitcoin. Tesla briefly announced that they were going to let people buy cars with Bitcoin. I don't think that actually happened. Uh, or at least like there was, you know, no interest in it. Um, because it is also possible, but it's not the easiest thing in the world. And especially in the US, there's also tax complications to consider when you're trying to do so. Um, the U.S. treats Bitcoin as property. So if you're trying to buy something with Bitcoin, you have to report capital gains or capital loss taxes on that, which, you know, if you're trying to buy a coffee, that's whatever, $2.50. You know, what is the capital gains tax on $2.50? So <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated. And there's efforts to try and get an exemption for small transactions, but it's not there yet. And so it might not be worth it to actually try and spend you're also coming up against the you know ideological thing where if you're buying into Bitcoin because you think its value is going to go up, why would you spend it? Right. So there's also a process of Bitcoin mining. So this is when people are creating new Bitcoins, Nick. So I know this is pretty technical, but can you talk about it in, uh, I guess, uh, basic terms about how Bitcoin mining works? Sure, yeah. So, you know, before we said that the whole thing behind Bitcoin is that it's controlled by, you know, numerous participants in the network scattered throughout the world. So miners are what we refer to as uh, when we're talking about the folks who are 
participating in controlling this network who are kind of providing the security and the, the power to keep it running. What they do is they run computers and we call these mining machines, um, but they're really just you know very powerful computers that are highly specialized that run the actual Bitcoin network. And you have, I think right now you have thousands and thousands of them. I do not have a firm idea, but you have, you know, sense computers controlled by different parties. And what they do is they process the transactions, they uh, send that out into the network, and then what you need is a majority of other computers that are running this network to agree with you processing that transaction. They get rewarded by what's called block rewards. So when you process transactions and you're running the network, you get you know some amount of Bitcoin, and they also get transaction fees by you know paid by the users who are trying to send value, and that's you know basically that's roughly how you know this whole thing has a security model. Um, that's how you know that uh, not just anyone's going to be able to try and hijack the network to you know send themselves all the Bitcoin or whatever. Right. You're hearing uh, Nicholas Day again here on Where We Live. He's managing editor for global policy and regulation at Coindesk, a crypto-focused news outlet based in New York. Uh, I wanted to talk more about uh, Bitcoin mining. Joining us now on Zoom, Alex DeVries, founder of Digiconomist, the blog that hosts the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index. Alex, welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So Bitcoin mining, it's grown into a huge industry worldwide. So how big are we talking and what are some of the impacts on our environment? Well, the industry itself, you could argue whether it's really big. And we're talking uh, in total, maybe around 3 million mining devices all around the world. Well, by, them, by itself, 3 million doesn't necessarily sound like a lot. But each uh, individual machine also consumes a lot of energy. And all those machines combined can actually consume as much electrical energy as a country like Argentina. So, yes, in that sense, it is a lot, especially if you consider that's more than a half a percent of our total global electricity consumption. We've been talking a lot about Bitcoin. You've also looked at Ethereum, which we learned about in the earlier part of the show. Um, yeah, and one of the other large and popular cryptocurrencies. Is it mined the same way as Bitcoin? At the moment, they're running the exact same algorithm. Now, the thing is that the total impact of the Ethereum network is less than that of the Bitcoin network. But the reason for that is that Bitcoin is also more valuable than Ethereum. And ultimately, what drives the uh, mining activity in these networks is the value of the native currency. So simply said, if the price of Bitcoin goes up, mining Bitcoin becomes more profitable because you know, the miners are receiving a fixed amount of Bitcoins, they'll be spending more or they'll have a bigger incentive to spend more on more machines and more electricity consumption. And yeah, uh, the, the more valuable the network is, the bigger ultimately it, it, its impact be, uh, becomes. Uh, that goes mm -hmm. two ways, by the way. You could also say the opposite is true. Uh, if the value of Bitcoin would be zero, miners wouldn't be making any money and they wouldn't be able to pay for any resource whatsoever. So crypto fans who might be listening are saying, look, running traditional banking systems uses a lot of energy too. So how does that compare? Uh, how does crypto and bit mining compare traditional banking? Well, it's, it's, it's a tough comparison for multiple reasons. And first of all, uh, comparing Bitcoin to traditional payment systems is hard because the Bitcoin system is extremely limited. 
you can maybe run at most seven transactions per second over the Bitcoin network, whereas a traditional payment provider like Visa can do 65,000 transactions per second. So in that sense, it's not even fair to start comparing them because Bitcoin at the moment really cannot get up to the same volumes. Um, now, the thing is, if you have such a limited transaction capacity, but your energy use isn't really uh, limited at all because it's related to the Bitcoin price and there is no cap to the Bitcoin price, you can end up with some extreme energy footprints. Uh, in fact, a single Bitcoin transaction has the same energy footprint as a average US household for a period of two months. Mm. Wow. And so it doesn't have to be this way. So what can be done? Well, the solution is already there in the sense that there's many cryptocurrencies out there that are running on what is called proof of stake, which is an alternative to Bitcoin's proof of work mining. And what is special about this alternative, which is, by the way, not the only alternative to proof of work, but definitely the most popular one, is that it does not rely on computational power. So if you have a cryptocurrency running on proof of stake, there is no incentive whatsoever for people to be using high energy consuming, very specialized single purpose machines. Um, yeah, if you run a cryptocurrency on such a proof of stake uh, algorithm, you can actually save 99.95 of the uh, percent of the energy consumption of uh, if the currency was running on a proof of work based system. Uh, and actually, the second largest cryptocurrency of the moment, Ethereum, as has been mentioned, is actively planning on making that switch in the near future, uh, which is something that could also be done for Bitcoin, theoretically. You know, the world just got some more alarming news on the climate front in the latest IPCC report that came out. It's pretty bleak. And, you know, there are instances of, of Bitcoin miners moving to locations and using old fossil fuel plants. And so there's a lot at stake, Alex, when we think about this. Yes, it's not just the energy use that is a problem, it's that a majority of this network is relying on fossil fuels. And, you know, they recently got kicked out of China because uh, in China, idle coal mines were being revived ultimately for the purpose of powering Bitcoin mines. And now we're seeing them relocate elsewhere. Um, but we see well, a very recent example in the US was the state of New York, where a Bitcoin miner revived an old uh, natural gas plant for the purpose of mining Bitcoins. And we're seeing several examples of that elsewhere. We see in Montana, we saw a, um, a coal mine being kept alive by Bitcoin miners. We saw in Pennsylvania that Bitcoin miners started using waste coal, which is even worse than regular coal. And now, uh, just very recently, there was a massive deal announced for natural gas in Alberta, Canada, uh, apparently some company called BlackRock Petroleum is planning to host up to a million machines in a single province of being Alberta and planning to power those with natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel. So and this is what ultimately gives rise to a pretty significant carbon footprint associated with this Bitcoin network. And like I said, it's as much electrical energy consumption as a country like Argentina, but then the associated emissions actually exceed the total amount of carbon that we're saving with deploying electric vehicles all around the world. So it's definitely not an insignificant uh, carbon amount. Uh, and when you read the latest 
IPCC report. Uh, well, that said, without um, and it just said every ton of carbon matters. So we definitely need to uh, consider this when we're uh, building this type of technology. We'll have to leave it there. Alex DeVries, again, founder of Digiconomist, the blog that hosts the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index. You've given us a lot to think about. Alex, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to keep talking to Nicolesh Day after the break. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. With me on Zoom is Nikolesh Day. He's managing editor for global policy and regulation at Coindesk, a crypto-focused news outlet based in New York. Uh, Nick, uh, we heard Alex DeVries uh, talking about uh, the concerns uh, with the energy consumption of Bitcoin mining. You know, how is uh, the crypto world responding to this? Uh, there's a pretty mixed bag. There are some who are for sure considering the energy implications. The proof of stake movement for Ethereum is one of these responses. Uh, you have some parties who think that Bitcoin mining might incentivize uh, more clean energy sources uh, if they're set up in different locations. Uh, and you have some folks who just they genuinely don't care. They don't see that as an important issue to be considering when you're talking about Bitcoin mining. Mm. Uh, earlier, I mentioned that Congress is looking at all of the, the wealth that's being created with uh, cryptocurrency investors and actually part of the massive infrastructure bill that the Senate recently passed. Uh, there is a, a part that relates to cryptocurrencies. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so the infrastructure bill has about $550 billion of new spending. And to pay for that, the folks who wrote it looked at the crypto industry and believe that they can generate about $28 billion over the next 10 years through expanding attacks on Bitcoin uh, or on crypto generally. So it's not a new tax, but what they're doing mm -hmm. is they're expanding the definition of a broker to try and capture more entities within the crypto ecosystem who can then you know provide information about their transactions that they're facilitating and therefore report and pay taxes on that. And the concern has been, you know, it's been a pretty broad definition, so it might capture parties that don't really have the information they would need to report. Right. And you, I think you mentioned $28 billion. Where did that number come from? That is the, that's a pretty big <laughs> mystery. Um, you know, we I've been reporting on this, a couple others that various news outlets have been reporting on this, and it's really unclear where exactly the calculation came from or what it was looking at. And, you know, there was an effort to try and drop, you know, non-broker entities, so, you know, Miners, for example, from the definition, but the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation, which appears to have produced the number, said that that would drop about five billion from the revenue generated. Uh, so it's very unclear where exactly that number came from or how anyone uh, calculated it. And so you talked about some of the consequences, and uh, would companies and, and brokers be moving out of the U.S. if this were to to pass completely? That's when the industry concern, right, is that if you legally cannot comply with these new regulations being enforced, then, you know, the options are either shut down or relocate. And so either way, the fear is that this industry will leave the U.S. And whether that is, you know, a permanent move or until the law changes or, uh, you know, what exactly the long-term consequences are, that's going to be ready to be seen. And, you know, this is 
probably will find out in a couple of years after the Treasury Department interprets this and all the regulations really come into effect. Uh, meanwhile, we've been talking again as Bitcoin created as a decentralized system, but now this idea of digital currencies gaining traction with central banks too, even the U.S. Fed thinking about its own. Can you briefly talk through talk us through that? Yeah, so central bank digital currencies is uh, this idea that a central bank needs to keep up with what's going on technologically, and so uh, some central banks are evaluating distributed ledgers as a potential technology base for uh, you know future proofing mm -hmm. their existing currencies. Right, a lot of folks uh, you know worldwide, not just in the U.S. but worldwide, primarily transact online now. They don't use physical cash anymore. And central bank digital currencies are one possible solution to, uh, you know, helping ensure this transition seamless and effective for all. The proponents believe that it could also help, you know, solve certain issues. Uh, for example, uh, you have uh, banking deserts in certain regions that you know require, uh, you know, you don't have banks in these locations. So a central bank digital currency might be easier for some folks to access the you know, world financial system by because you don't need a bank to support it. Um, the Fed is looking at this. They haven't really released any decisions, but you have countries like China that are already in the pilot stages of trialing these kinds of central bank digital currencies. Mm, so it sounds like the U.S. will be playing catch up once again. Uh, Nikolish Day, thank you for joining us today on the show, uh, Managing Editor for Global Policy and Regulation at Coindesk, a crypto-focused news outlet based in New York. Uh, we really appreciate you. your time. <laughs> I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As I mentioned, Carmen Baskoff produced today's show. And at the top of the hour, I mentioned she's leaving the show to start grad school. She's been a member of the Where We Live team for four years, and she's produced some memorable shows. There's too many to name here, but if there is a science angle or a transportation angle, you can be sure Carmen was producing that episode. Uh, she came to the team right out of college, and she had the right instincts to become a journalist. She's immensely curious. She's not afraid to push back exactly what you want on a news talk show team. She's also been a great colleague and friend. All the best to you, Carmen. We can't wait to hear what's next for you. Today's show, again, produced by Carmen. Her last show, we really appreciate all your work. Uh, our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hannes Brown uh, may, produced our theme song. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>